then we can share it. Give your mother to share it with your friends. Oh, yeah. Should we go on our Facebook then? You can. It's kind of weird. It's like Inception. <laughs> Looking at ourselves. Yeah. Here we are. Live. <clears throat> All right. I think we are We live. are live? Yes, sir. We can go ahead and share this with our friends. Cool. It's funny how you have to scroll all the way. Oh, I see myself. You are live, young. <laughs> I know. I know. It's oh, just on our page, you know. Some it's kind of difficult because it's not like front and center. You have to scroll right to our posts. It's kind of something that Facebook should probably make. Oh no, no. All right, we're going live. I can hear myself. That's not good. How do I share this thing? All right, you guys ready? Give me a second. I'm having trouble sharing. We can just begin. Forget about it. (laughs) Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Welcome to Life Church Auburn Hills Lunchtime Conversation. I'm Donald Johnson, and I serve as the lead pastor. And my friends, I am really excited about this moment we're about to step into. First, as the audience, I'm gonna ask you to do two things. One, I'm gonna ask you to take a quick moment and share this stream. So go ahead and take a moment, share the stream. And then the second item that I wanna ask you to do is if you have any questions or comments or anything like that along the way, feel free to post them in the comments. And um, they may be answered within the uh, discussion or answered sometime later. So go ahead and do those two items for me, share the stream. And again, just remember you feel free to comment. And what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna give you a brief introduction and then I'm gonna get out of the way. And then our executive pastor, Young Chin, he's gonna take it from here. And then, so I want to emphasize as the lead pastor that these conversations are vitally important. They are crucial as we live into what we call 3C friendships. That's being committed, cross-cultural, and Christ-centered. And let me say this, this is not a passion for us. It is not a passion for diversity but this is a pursuit of a promise. This is a pursuit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And recently we have, uh, we've witnessed uh, the rise of xenophobia and the use of disparaging and divisive language toward our Asian brothers and sisters. And I want you to know that we stand in solidarity. We stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters and we're not standing as victims but we're standing as victors because of Jesus Christ who shed his blood for all of us. He did that to reconcile our relationships to God and consequently our relationship with each other. And if you look at that, that is a horizontal reconciliation with God and then the vertical um, with, I'm sorry, the vertical with God and the horizontal with each other, which forms the cross, which he did that for us. And so we want to press and make sure we press into that. 
So as you may know, this is Asian American and or Asian and Pacific Islander, Islander Heritage Month. And I'm grateful for our panelists, which not only are panelists, but they are brothers and sisters. So today I want to introduce our panelists. And like I mentioned before, I'm gonna get out of your way. So first, and uh, when I call your name, if you can just give them a wave and say, hey, is Helen Choi. Wave at him. She is the host of Erasing Shame, which is a podcast on mental health, faith, and community healing. She's also a focused on advocacy, communication, and fun development. And Helen at Helen Choi and Associates. Also, she is a super mom to her beautiful daughter, Joy. So welcome, Helen. All right. And we have Raymond Chang, who is the president of the Asian American Christian Collaboration. He's a pastor and author. He lives in Chicagoland, serving a campus ministry at Wheaton College, teaching on discipleship and spiritual formation. He is happily married to his dear wife, Jessica. Welcome, Raymond. And we have Dilo Benjamin. Hello. He said hello. He's born in Sri Lanka and he came to Michigan at the age of nine because of Civil War. He studied electrical engineering at Michigan State University and he traveled internationally for various engineering projects. Currently, he is a controls coordinator for Fiat Chrysler Automobiles in Auburn Hills. Hello, Dilo. And Last but definitely not least, we have Andrew Kim, who is a teaching pastor at Kensington Church at Troy Campus. He is originally from Vancouver, and I quote, this is quotes, the real one in Canada, not the fake one in Washington. <laughs> Thanks for getting that in. I appreciate that. <laughs> I have to get that quote in there. <laughs> he is married to Robin, and they have three wonderful children. And so, again, it is a great pleasure and honor and joy to have you here and to have this conversation on today. At this time, I am going to bow out and our executive pastor, Jan, he's going to introduce himself and take it from here. So, Jan, it's on you. Thank you. God cool. bless you. Thank you, Pastor Donald. See you later. Well, hey, everyone. My name is Yang Chen. Like Donald said, I'm the executive pastor here at Life Church Auburn Hills. And I love talking about race and faith and how interconnected they are, especially with um, Asian American identity. So today, we're just going to have a conversation, really, about our stories, our journeys, um, and then talk about kind of how people see us during this season of COVID-19. And finally, kind of some Christian responses, kind of encouragement for other people on how they can, I guess, uh, support us or advocate with us and stuff like that. So to begin, I like to um, just talk about food. So today I had a Malona bar and I got this recently from Costco. And uh, I believe it's originally from Korea and it's really good. It's like, it's, they call it gelato on a stick. So it's like an ice bar, but it has the consistency of almost like sorbet a little bit. Um, it's funny because when I went to Costco and my wife's like, you should get this. I was like, okay. And it was there. I was surprised. And, the, and also perhaps not surprisingly, no one bought it except me because they probably saw it. They're like, what is this? 
So just want to help Costco out a little bit, giving them a little advertisement. Um, I'm sure some of you at least know what those bars are. Um, anyway, just want to open it up to, to you guys. What type of uh, Asian foods do you guys like to eat? Anyone can just jump in. Well, I had uh, sushi yesterday for dinner. Okay. Um, but generally speaking, I like all types of food. Um, I like ramen. I like sushi. I like um, all types of Chinese and Korean food, Korean barbecue. Um, yeah, and I also like Indian food and Sri Lankan food. So I mean, I just, I just like cuisine in general, different cuisines in general. Mm, cool. What would you say? I guess the difference between Indian and Sri Lankan food would be like one thing. Well, India has several different types of food depending on which state you're in. Or which area you're in um you know like southern side of india is typically more spicy than north india so sri lankan food is very similar to south indian food okay it's, it's like, a lot of it's an island of off of south india right i'm sorry it's an island off of south india yeah or it's a small island of india right? yeah it's only like maybe maybe 10 miles or you know not not that far off from india cool um yeah, it's very similar to Southern India, but but ironically though, my mom, when we were younger, made sure the food was less spicy than oh. like the typical Sri Lankan food. So, okay. despite me coming from uh, from Sri Lanka, right, I have a low tolerance to spicy food. Okay, good to know. What about the rest of y'all? I love Korean food and. I have a bias towards it, but if I had to choose food for the rest of my life, I'd be eating sushi like every single day. That's what I'm looking forward to. Father's Day, I told my family, all I need is just like a big boatload of sushi and then you can just leave me alone and then I'm, I'll be good. And so I'll share if need be. But that's basically my Father's Day gift. So I think it's in like in three weeks. So that's something that I'm looking forward to. Cool. Who, Helen, I'll call you. Sure. Um, my favorite food, I'm just like Andrew, I'm of uh, Korean descent. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually was um, born and raised in South Korea and immigrated to Canada. Um, so with that upbringing, I'm by default, I my staple and go to is pop, which is rice and kimchi. Um, preferably homemade kimchi by my mom. <laughs> I don't know how to make kimchi just buy it at um, H Mart or the local grocery stores. And I find um, grocery stores and even convenience stores are quite uh, culturally aware and hmm. open to selling um, a lot of Korean foods packaged from Korea, like Korean bulgogi sauce for Korean barbecue or Korean shinramyeon, which is spicy Korean ramyeon. Um, and especially that it's uh, Asian Heritage Month, I'm seeing a lot of sales going on. So it's my jam. Like, I'm just really happy yeah. that, you know, I can go to grocery stores or convenience stores and buy uh, and Korean food. Yeah, H-Mart is big. They're here over here in uh, Michigan, too. <laughs> I hope H-Mart takes over the world. Oh. <laughs> um, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, appreciate you hosting this conversation, and for everyone who's tuning in, uh, it's 
it's a it's a it's an important discussion and i hope that we can get into some important uh details of which food is one of them i am a avid foodie and we can talk about this all day long every day um but if i i, I as much as i love uh tikka masala and naan and i love sushi and you know i love uh you know all these different types of foods i think about the one food that i could eat for all eternity and I, i'd have to say it's korean food uh, most people, uh, when they think of Korean food, automatically assume that it's it's always Korean barbecue, which to me is just plain barbecue. There's no Korean barbecue; it's just barbecue. Um, but yeah, I mean, like there's there's different stews, different uh, kind of side dishes. Uh, there are uh, stir fries and entrees. Uh, there's the the, the variety uh, within the the Korean palate is so broad, and the the cuisine is so broad that. I think I could eat it every single day for the rest of my life. What would you say is your favorite? My, within, my favorite? Yeah, within all in that. In the Korean food genre? If I if I had to eat one thing every day for the rest of my life, it'd probably be either uh, tenjang jjigae or kimchi jjigae. Either soybean paste stew <laughs> or uh, or kimchi stew, one or okay. the other. Cool. I could eat that for I I could eat that for breakfast. All right. Well, thank you all. Yeah, like Ray said, I'm so thankful to be here with you all to have this conversation. Um, I just want to begin with just um, hearing a little bit about everyone, kind of like your upbringing. Um, I guess, what is it like to be to grow up Asian in America in Canada? And um, I guess Dilo coming here from Sri Lanka, too. So who would like to go first? Just a little bit about your childhood growing up. You know, what's it like being Asian here in the States or in Canada? Maybe I should just pick on people. <laughs> All right, Andrew, go, go ahead. Oh, good stuff. Okay, I'll go <laughs> first. Yeah, hey, so, um, yeah, I was born, uh, like, I'm, uh, I guess I'm Korean, uh, Canadian, American. I actually just got my citizenship last year, and it was really cool um, at Comerica Park. Um, just right before the Tigers game. Um, and that was a really, really cool ceremony. And so I feel like I'm a little bit of a lot of things. Um, but um, but I, I call Vancouver home and Vancouver is just an interesting place. I was actually looking at some census data from probably about a decade ago. Um, and Vancouver, I think the Caucasian population at that time uh, was like 49% and the Asian population was 49%. And so when you're talking about East Asian, South Asian, West Asian, um, just all of uh, Asians together. Um, and so I grew up just surrounded by Asians. Um, but I think a huge part of my story is intertwines, of course, with my parents. My parents, they immigrated from South Korea to Canada um, because my dad wanted to go to school. And they had like that mentality that a lot of, I feel like Koreans specifically, um, and a lot of Asians had back then in that they believed that they looked at the West and they believed that the West was the best. They had the best, the best educational opportunities, the best job opportunities, the best sort of like you name it. And so my dad came um, and he got his uh, PhD. And then um, right when he actually got a great job because we were so poor because he was a full-time student, he actually suddenly passed away of cancer. And it was just really interesting. When I look back on it, my mom, she could have gone back to Korea. She was very, very accomplished herself. But being in Canada, her her uh, college degree wasn't recognized, her skills, her teaching degree wasn't recognized. And if that was me, and I'm in a foreign country by myself with no family and friends around with two young children, I would have gone back home. But she actually stayed. And when I think about that, her sort of mentality as um, a Korean person, just looking at the West in a certain way, she looked at us and she said, hey, you know what, for them, I'm going to stay. And so I can't imagine the hopes and the dreams that she had to sacrifice 
on our behalf. And like a lot of like Asian immigrants, she opened up a small business. She worked for 20 years. She was the only employee there. It was a flower shop. And she basically, whether she felt amazing or whether she was deathly ill, she had to go and she had to work. And I, I, rem I remember like a couple of times um, just experiencing, just because she had broken English, some of her interactions with customers and some of the bigotry and the racism she actually experienced as a result of that. And so that really shaped me. So there are a lot of incredible things just growing up as uh, uh, with having parents who are immigrants, sacrifice, hard work, all of that is so ingrained um, in uh, the children. But at the same time, also the sadness that comes from, why does it have to be like this? Right. Uh, just looking at what my mom had to go through on certain uh, certain occasions, just in the interactions with others, it just really was heartbreaking as well. And so that's really a lot, huge part of who I am. Yeah, for sure. The immigrant, you know, our parents and the sacrifices. I can definitely relate with that. Um, let's go to Ray. Yeah, I mean, I think my story is similar to Andrew's. Uh, I grew up in Chicago. Uh, my parents. Uh, didn't go the flower shop shop route. Uh, they were uh, they weren't part of the first wave of Asian immigrants to to the United States. Uh, or the earlier, uh, for those who don't know, the earlier uh, people who migrated from the from from countries throughout Asia to to the United States were kind of a part of a brain drain. So the highly educated. So my aunt and uncle were like in that realm where they you know that they went to medical school and and they you know, they they were they received scholarship to come to, to the United States to go to medical school. My parents, or my mom, went from Korea to Argentina to the United States. Um, and, and a part of that, uh, she, she came in high school. My dad came when he was in his 20s. And then they met, uh, you know, probably when they're, they're late 20s and then had me right away. But their, their story was one of taking a lot of risk to start restaurants. Uh, and because, you know, I'm Korean-American, second generation, uh, most people didn't know what Koreans were in, uh, within our area. And so uh, we, we started a Chinese restaurant because people wouldn't go to a Korean restaurant or people wouldn't uh, be interested in going to a Korean restaurant. So my dad had to learn how to cook Chinese food. My mom ran, ran the, the front of the house. My dad was in the, in the kitchen um, and they were working 16 hours uh, a day at, at least, you know, every day, you know, wake up at six o'clock, go to the, the, the market, buy all the ingredients, and then they'd be home somewhere probably between like 10 and 11 p.m. after they closed up shop. And, and kind of like Andrew's uh, mom, you know, they, they didn't take any days off. And so um, you know, because of the sacrifices that they made, uh, because of this notion of an American dream that they bought into, uh, you know, we had to give, to gain some, to gain certain things, we had to give up a lot of other things that some people, you know, didn't have to give up. And a part of that was time with family, you know, sharing meals at dinner time, um, having help to do homework, um, you know, learning just basic kind of things on how to navigate society. They were learning how to navigate from a first generation perspective while I was learning how to navigate from a second generation perspective. And those are two different ways of navigating, you know, this country. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up you know, not really understanding what it meant to be Korean American, except that I, I didn't feel Korean enough. Uh, on Sundays when I went to my, to our, our, our immigrant church, and I didn't feel American enough because of the way that racialization works and how I was perceived by kind of the, the, the surrounding uh, society and the environments uh, that 
that for me, like, even though I was a full-blooded American, right, I'm, I'm, I'm American all the way through, uh, I wasn't accepted as a full American, right? And so the, I grew up with the whole Chinese, Japanese, dirty knees, look at these, and, and I was Korean, right? I'm like, I'm not in any of those categories. What does that even mean? Um, and so I didn't really understand what it meant to be Asian American. I didn't understand what it meant to be Korean American, except that, you know, both uh, the immigrant community and the, the, the quote unquote American, which oftentimes means white American community, didn't have space for me in their imagination. Um, and then the, and, and, but then with the, immigrate, with the immigrant communities, they were trying to figure out what it would mean to be a second generation Korean, right? So there's, there's, there's much more of a learning process there versus like a kind of racialization and racism shaping the interactions that I had with the broader society. Uh, and then it wasn't until probably like my mid twenties that I started reading books on 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 issues pertaining to race and systemic racism and and racialization that I started seeing all of my experiences um, through the lens of things that many people have already written on and started making sense of my own uh, upbringing, my own experiences, my own life. Uh, which has actually led to a lot of helpful healing, a lot of helpful kind of understanding of myself, uh, and then eventually led to even like how we disciple people. How do we actually help people learn how to live out their faith um, in a racialized society? Because race is a kind of is baked within our system. It's baked within mm -hmm. our society, and we can't avoid it wherever we go. Yeah, thank you. It's very helpful to kind of look at the difference between our parents' generation, the first versus us. I think most of us are either second or 1.5 kind of, you know, growing up in a Western society. Let's go to Dilo now. So I was uh, born in Sri Lanka. Um, growing up there, right? Um, we were a very happy, very happy family, grandparents, uncles, they all lived in Sri Lanka. So my parents actually had no desire to come to the US, um, but really what motivated them migrating here was the civil war in Sri Lanka, which started in 83. And then by like 94, it started escalating again. There were a couple of times when the armies and the fighting actually took very close to our home. So we had to flood. So if you flood actually a couple of times, so, so this caused major concerns for my parents. And really that was the main reason for coming to the US. Um, and it was very difficult at first because my parents had, were very affluent in Sri Lanka. My dad had a very good job, but after coming to the US, right, the education and none of the experiences were recognized. So my dad had to go back to college and uh, get a degree. And in the meantime, while he was going to school, um, you know, working one or two jobs. Um, so it was just a very challenging time for my family growing up. Um, but I mean, during this process, I, th I think this whole process impacted me negatively, you know, just because there's very significant changes in the culture and you know, values. And when I came to the US, I knew very little English. So just knew some words, you know, like hi, hello, or good morning, and things like that. So it took me about six months 
to get to have some familiarity with the language. And so during that time, it was just very difficult to have, you know, friendships and, you know, like a normal life here. Um, so that just kind of made me become more isolated. So by sixth grade, I knew English fairly well, but despite that, it just was very difficult for me to make friends. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, um, I just went into, um, you know, isolation and didn't have friends, didn't talk to anybody. Um, so this was a very, you know, stressful time in my life. And, um, and I guess this is also the time where Christianity also really helped me to write because it made me uh, depend on God more. Mm -hmm. um, so by the time I was in high school, you know, I, my faith in God became stronger and that kind of helped me to come out, come out of the isolation. And so, I mean, from then on, I guess my life became more quote unquote normal, you know, that it normalized. Um, but as far as other people are concerned, I, I think um, I, I didn't really feel too much discrimination. I felt like um, people were welcoming. Um, it's just more of my inability to form relationships, right? Due to language barriers and cultural differences were the main contributing factors to mm. all, all of my negative experiences. Um, but, but at the same time, right at, at the end of the road, when I, um, crossed the finish line, I, I think, um, what I learned from all of this was tremendously helpful because this process of overcoming, right. Can be applied to many other areas in life. So I found that when I came across stressful situations, you know, I could apply some of these skills and things that I learned, right. To help me deal with that better. Mm -hmm. So, so it's one of those things where like in hindsight, right. I'm glad I went through all of those experiences because it culminated in me being who I am today, mm -hmm. but going through that process, right. It's very difficult. Yeah. It's very difficult and very challenging times, but I, I think in hindsight, right. I'm glad, glad to have gone through all that. Yeah. You, you forgot the part where you were super popular in Sri Lanka. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, I, you that yeah, yeah. It probably also, I think, contribute to your, uh, yes, your sadness here. In the, <laughs> yeah, because anyway. you know, I, I had a lot of friends. Yeah. Um, very popular. Um, academically, did really well. Went to one of the best schools in Sri Lanka. Um, so being being accustomed to that lifestyle, and then coming to the U.S. where we literally had nothing. Mm -hmm. um, it was especially right at like eight or nine years old that's like a very challenging time um so that probably you're right that that probably did contribute quite a bit to what i experienced but but overall i think you know i'm, I'm glad to have gone through all that i think it was cool the net was positive yeah all right helen wow um i'm just soaking in all the stories they're very powerful um i guess my story and journey um, as I shared previously, I was um, I, I was born in Korea South, and I, you know, had a very I think overall very happy childhood. I like I don't know maybe it's my personality that I was God has given me the gift of joy, 
um, that I'm just a very bubbly person. Um, but yeah, I remember my memories of growing up with a lot of mountains in South Korea and um, going with my mom to fetch fresh water and waiting long lineups to get fresh water. And I remember during the 80s in South Korea where we lived, we didn't have a highly sophisticated washroom or a toilet. So you kind of had to go in a hole in the ground. I don't know if anyone who's listening remembers yeah. that or sleeping on the ground and the ground was like super warm. And then it would be like called ondor. I don't know if this rings a bell with anyone. If you've experienced sleeping on like a really warm ground. Um, and I remember chasing after dragonflies and uh, by the mountains and then getting all the bugs to like fight each other and get all like excited because we didn't have video games we didn't have internet we didn't have sophisticated toys so you know like growing up in sort of like the shigor um inner city type um like out of town i don't know it was, during that time it, the um, south korea was considered second world when um, the three levels of development stages in countries was like considered first, second, third world. And um, from 80s to 90s, there was, well, actually 70s and 60s onwards, but a, a rapid um, immigration from South Korea to the US and Canada. And I guess that's where I fit into the pieces of being part of the diaspora community. Um, my my story is that my parents came um, to Canada um, for a better life, like many people, but it was actually for my brother who had caught asthma and in South Korea and the air quality in South Korea wasn't as good as Canada. So it wasn't about education or the best job like Andrew Kim shared in his um, narrative, but it was actually about um, the best quality of air and water <laughs> and Canada is known for that so um, I live in Niagara and I can actually attest to the beauty of nature here and the geographic space that is just so hard to find in a densely populated city like Seoul where there's over uh, easily over 10 million people um, and my childhood you know I came to Canada when I was eight um, afterwards um, having grown up watching Anna Green Gables cartoons and P.P. Longstocking in uh, South Korea and watching Michael Jackson do the moonwalk, I was actually really excited to come to Canada. I've been in, in a background where everyone was quite homogeneous. Everyone had black hair, um, quote unquote, yellow face, nippy eyes, um, eating kimchi. And then I was really excited to see people with um, red hair, green eyes, and freckles like me. <laughs> um, and, you know, but I think that purity and that innocence started to get challenged um, once I started entering the education system. When I entered ESL, um, I didn't know how to ask to go to the washroom, so I peed on my pants during class because I didn't know how to go to the washroom. <laughs> <laughs> or, or I would just, you know, get into fights with other kids over um, not having to self-express myself. And I think also because the integration of different race and ethnicity, as well as, um, and at the time I was a child, I didn't know that there was 
you know, um, historical and social grievances due to xenophobia, racism, and colorism, or sexism, any of that. So I, I wondered why people called me a chink. I wondered why, you know, people would kind of, you know, segregate me and I should, I would be othered. Um, but as I, you know, got older and more mature, acclimatizing to the systems and, and I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm totally grateful that I'm in Canada right now, but there are definitely um, a lot of, I think looking back over the past hundred years to where I am as a Korean Canadian woman, um, 1.5 generation and third culture kid is, um, and also as a woman, there's so much advancement that I'm able to access. For example, the fact that, you know, I have been able to graduate from university, been able to hold management positions, um, raise a child on my own, you know, from coming from a strictly homogenous patriarchal Korean society, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do any of that. And I think also my Christian identity has really helped me to break away from, from, I guess, some social norms that hold and oppress women. And I could talk more about COVID-19 yeah. and how, you know, my work with charities and nonprofits, you start to see a, a spike and a surge of violence against women and children and families. Okay, well, perfect. We are going to transition to talking about COVID-19. And as Asian Americans, I'm sure some of you have seen in the news, right, there's discrimination. And some of you, I, I know for you, Ray, you wrote this on your Facebook, you faced um, an incident yourself, I believe, right? Um, so let's, let's start with there, Ray, can you tell us about what you, what you face and also kind of like your work in, in trying to defeat racism during this time <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know if we'll ever defeat racism right. uh, in in the sense of uh, eradicate it it's kind of right. like eradicating sin but our hope is that we won't stop uh applying the 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 balm of the gospel to everything so that we are able to live out of our convictions uh, knowing that jesus overcomes all uh to to have courage to continue to address uh the sin of racism which you know kind of does lie under the surface a lot of times, right? It, it lies in the ideologies and the belief systems and, and, and a lot of times the denying that it actually exists, right? And, and you'll see that within different communities where some people will say, this is racist and other people will say, no, it's not. And then it's usually the person of color that's saying, this is racist. And then a person from a dominant white majority group that says, no, it's not racist. And you're like, you can't, it, it can't either be, it can't be both, right? It can't be racist and not racist. It has to be one or the other. And, and just the, the disparity in how people interpret things is, is I, I believe a stronghold. Um, but, you know, like I actually experienced, one was much more subtle. And so it took me some time to like try to process through it. The, the first time we went out, cause we were uh, serious about self-quarantining, uh, my wife and I were, were wanting to do our part to love our neighbor by staying inside the house and not going out if we didn't need to. Uh, we don't live in a big place, you know, ministry salary. Uh, and so that, that, that comes with certain limitations. Um, but, you know, we did need groceries from time to time. And so I went out to, to our local Walmart. And the first 
time I walked in, so, uh, these two women who happened to be white looked at me and then they talked to each other loud enough so I heard and they said, there's another one. And I'm like, what's another one? And like, it was clear that they were pointing at me because there wasn't like anyone like right behind me. But I did look around, I scanned the room, kind of did the analysis and realized that I wasn't the only male. I wasn't the only one with gloves. I wasn't the only one with a mask. I wasn't the only one with a hat on. I wasn't the only one with a jacket. The only difference between me and everyone else was that I was Asian. And by the time that I figured that out, they had already walked out. And I just kind of stood there and be like, wow, this, you know, like I'm in a pretty diverse area, you know, I'm in the Chicago area. And so it's not like, you know, we're in a very homogenous neighborhood. And then, and so I, you know, I came home and I, you know, I, I call, talk, talked to my wife and I said, this is, it's, it's getting worse, you know? And, um, and then um, you know, a, a couple weeks ago, I was just, it was the first nice day in, in, in our area. And so I just kind of sat outside, you know, we live on like a mildly busy street. It's kind of like semi busy, not, not super busy. It's not like a super private street, uh, but there is some traffic that goes, it's like a through traffic street. Um, and some guy in a truck just drives by and said, uh, you yellow piece of poop, you know, insert the, the, the curse word instead of poop. Um, and I was like, all I was doing was sitting out in front of my lawn in front of my house and uh, someone just looked at me and immediately associated me with whatever it is that they, they were thinking, uh, likely driven by uh, the, the media sources that they were uh, surrounded by, uh, their, their communities that they were informed by and felt like they felt like it was so uh, important for them to, to yell out of their car as they were driving by uh, and, and target me. And so again, I look around, I'm like, am I the only Asian? I know that I'm the only Asian kind of within my own little like uh, block of townhomes. And at that point I was like, he knows where I live. Um, and he happened to be a white man. Uh, he knows where I live. He, uh, I've seen reports of people, uh, homes and, um, and stores, stores being vandalized that were owned by Asians. Uh, and some of those included like rocks being thrown through windows. And so I'm like, are we now safe? I don't even know. Like my, I'm thankful that my wife was inside the house, but do we now have to make sure that our shades are closed all the time to make sure that, you know, that, that no one can look inside our house, but then that means that we have no sunlight. Right. And so those are things that I had to, we had to talk to. I kind of walked inside and later that night, there was like a, someone, I think some of the kids in the area probably lit a firework and there was a loud bang. And I reacted in a way that I normally don't when there's a fire, you know, when an, that kind of explosion takes place because, you know, fireworks happen like every month or so, like some kids in their backyard are, are, are lighting something up. Um, and I think it's illegal in Illinois, but I don't know. Um, but for me, I was just like, okay. I just remember feeling like, like on, on like I, I immediately went to threat assessment mode. Like, mm. do I have to, to, to take us into the bathroom, you know, all this stuff. And some people might be like, well, you're overreacting. But I was like, no, you, you just don't know, right? I don't think anyone who has been on the receiving end of racism, especially overt racism, which basically is the attitudes that have already existed throughout our societies are basically coming to the surface. And because of the, the, the pandemic, people feel like they have the permission 
to uh, to be to to take it out on 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 those who appear to be Chinese or those who appear to be from Asia, um, and so I mean that that's what happened. Okay, thank you for sharing. I mean, even for me, even if I don't face it myself, reading about it or hearing stories from you, it's definitely I think a lot of Asians are more self-conscious than before, and I think that's kind of sad for us to. It's like even before the pandemic, some are already self-conscious due to various reasons, right? Perhaps past discrimination, but now yeah, because of the pandemic, yeah. No, and I and I will say like when when my when I because I usually am the one that goes out uh, to go and buy the groceries. Um, when when we talk about when my wife and I talk about like me going out, we're we're less concerned about contracting the virus, which we're very concerned about, than we are with experiencing racism. Right, and there are many people that haven't experienced it. Uh, but you know, like one of the things I've been sharing with people is, as I've been studying the black experience in America, and I've been listening to my black friends and kind of pressing into the literature uh, around you know the history of African American uh, people in this country. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to know what their experiences are in their head, but for Asian Americans on a mass level. Uh, we've are the racism we've usually experienced is usually something along the lines of a joke. Like someone will say, "Ah, oh, you know, you have X, Y, and Z, or you must like this because you, do you like noodles because you're Asian, or you know, are you, you know, if you're Indian, are you good at cricket?" And you know, I'm just like you, you, everything boils down to some sort of like stereotypical trope. Um, and I think for the first time, uh, I personally am understanding what it might look like in a, in, in, a, in a very small way and probably for a very temporary way, what it must be like to be black in America, right? Because for nothing other than uh, their skin color, for the, the, the racialized features, right? They are viewed as a threat to society. And, and so they can't you know, do the very everyday things that many of us are, that have taken for granted. And I think this is the first time that I personally feel that when I go out, I'm more vigilant about being Asian than I am about like someone getting a little too close, right? And some people aren't taking this pandemic as seriously as they need to be um, because my sister's a nurse and she's like, there's a lot of people that don't think that they're supposed to contract. They don't think that they're gonna contract the disease, but then when they contract it, they, you know, like it's usually because they they stop taking it as seriously as they should have, and then you know, and then and then problems emerge. Um, but yeah, this is the first yeah. time, at least for me, where I, I'm starting to resonate at a visceral level what it must be like to be black in America. Yeah, and that's why it's so important, I think, um, for solidarity between African Americans and Asian Americans, and just all people of color, because of our there are things that are different that we cannot relate with, but there are things that are similar as well. So I want to. Take it to Dilo. I know Dilo has a unique perspective, not only because he's South well, Asian, but yeah. Yeah, I think Helen has to go soon, right? Maybe. You have 15 more minutes. Yeah, sure. We can go to Helen first and then we'll go to Dilo. Yeah. Do you have anything to, I mean, just during the season? Yeah, so I guess um, in terms of COVID-19, um, through the Erasing Shame podcast, I was able to um, focus on primarily on self-care um, and previous to that I was focused on how do you heal from racialized trauma mm. 
And, you know, I brought in some um, experts and especially in particular women of color who um, have lived experience um, in the U.S. and are now, you know, going for have completed their Masters of Divinity and going for their PhD in clinical psychology. And I mean, the degrees that they got from like Yale University and stuff is just so astounding to see, you know, the future of um, missional and clinical psychology where it's going. So being able to um, engage with thought leaders or emerging leaders at the cost of healing and um, resilience, I think was really insightful. Um, so if you have a chance, you should check out the www.erasingshame.com podcast where, um, you know, each episode is about 20 to 20 minutes to 40 minutes, which, you know, I can't talk about all here, but just in terms sure. of overall summary, I think during this time, it's really important to focus on self-care and uh, parent care if you're a parent with a child and you know you, you might have to do some work from at home or you might be stressed because you lost a job during this time mm-hmm. or if you're asian you might also be you know um in the odd occasions or several depending on where you are confined be a target of multiple um, incidences of microaggression due to people's um, embedded um, conscious or unconscious biases. And um, so that is sort of like a remedy to, um, you know, sort of have that balance in your life to stay healthy. And, and also from a faith context, how do you live as a witness and as an opportunity to really um, shine and to share God's love because when we look at the media when we think about um, racism a lot of the times um, white evangelical Christians um, are, are, are seen as um, the evils of society that are sort of creating a lot of this problem and I think that um, narrative is really creating sort of like this um, divide and conquer amongst the um believers who come from all different spectrums and lived experiences and um, so that's just something to just sort of highlight in terms of being agents of reconciliation um, during this time uh, which you know we keep hearing is unprecedented Um, previously I just talked about um, gender-based violence in domestic settings because um, I have a lot of experience working with various nonprofits and charities, in particular, that work with homeless populations, uh, refugee populations, um, sort of, um, I guess, domestic violence shelters, um, you know, places that helps orphans in distress, uh, widows, single parents, in particular, single moms um, who are, uh, you know, who are caught in the intersection of not just racism, but sexism and classism due to systemic um, barriers, which cause poverty. Mm. Um, So I think it's important to highlight the disparities of racism, but as well as um, the disparities for children and women and Mm -hmm seniors in particular and the people who are confined in the shelters or even in in jails and disproportionately um as you know you're 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 kind of talking about this yang is building um a cross-cultural solidarity 
and camaraderie with our Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. And as believers, continuing to share, you know, God's love through humility and mercy. Mm -hmm. I hope that helps. Yeah. And um, you mentioned also the idea of of job loss, right? Yes. And I want to bring it to Dilo now. He has a unique perspective as someone working in the automotive industry. Mm-hmm. And um, can you just share that one story you were talking about? Um, yeah, month? so we, we had a conference or, or a meeting to discuss um, about the COVID. And so I, I guess that um, like there's some protections in place, right? For employees in case they lose a job, their job, or if they have to get laid off, the company has to provide some assistance for some time period. So there were some people that were concerned that perhaps they were not going to get that assistance because there's a clause in the contracts which says that, you know, if it's, if it's considered an act of God, then the company won't be able to provide those assistances. So some people were concerned that is the COVID-19 considered, quote unquote, an act of God. And then one other person said, no, this is not an act of God. It was the Chinese. That was the comment that they said. Um, I personally have not felt like any discrimination coming from COVID-19, but but I do feel like I'm seeing it around me. I'm seeing other people who are victims of racism. And, and generally speaking, I'm seeing more and more comments such as these, like it's the Chinese or whatever. Um, so we, we're just kind of ashamed, right? Because I felt like for a long period of time, we were raising, you know, global awareness with a lot of people. And then um, just within the last couple of years, seems like, you know, we're going back to like more populistic, you know, more populism, populistic ideas and kind of reversing some of those progresses that we've made over the past like several years. So, and I think the COVID-19 just, made that even worse you know um so it's a bit unfortunate and and i am personally seeing more of these like attacks and comments um targeted you know against the asian people so yeah i feel like when there's a threat in our society it's it's easy for us to to blame someone right or to to kind of scapegoat I guess you could say and it seems right. like at least the media or at least some you know our government on some level is trying to shift blame to China and of course that kind of portrays not just Chinese people in America but Asian Americans as, as a whole um, right in a certain image because a lot of people look at us and it's hard to distinguish you know between a Chinese and a Korean for example exactly um, and I think a lot of people don't and kind of like the entire racial group, quote unquote, Asians, right, are being targeted. Mm-hmm. And, and even the term, I think, calling it the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus, I think there is some derogatory or, you know, some negative connotations to using that phrase. Um, you know, because sometimes, you know, they do name viruses or diseases after a certain like locale or regions. But I think in this specific instance, it's, it's a little bit more than that. Okay, cool. Thanks for sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take it to Andrew. I know we talked recently and you were talking about your, I guess, 
ethnic awakening journey, right? And recently you, um, you wrote a piece also for Kensington's blog about uh, this issue as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, and so that was really well received um, by our community. Um, and one of the things that just in um, hearing these stories, uh, it just really broke my heart as to what was going on, like exactly what Ray shared. Um, uh, and it goes all across the spectrum uh, as to what Asian Americans and Asian Asians and Asian Americans in this country have experienced. And so I, I wrote this piece um, and really it was for a number of reasons. First of all, it was to uh, bring awareness to what was happening because at that point, um, this was maybe about a month and a half, two months ago, uh, if I remember correctly, there just wasn't a lot on main, in regards to mainstream media about just bringing light to what was going on and what the Asian and Asian American population in this country was experiencing. And so that was one of the reasons. But at the same time, um, as Dilo was talking about, it was to also um, to talk about uh, and to shed light on the fact that words matter. And this whole um, vocabulary that many of our leaders in, or some of our leaders in this country were using about Chinese virus, Wuhan virus, and using sort of and explaining it away as saying, hey, you know what, it originated there. So what is the problem of actually using that type of terminology? And the WHO specifically does not do that for the reasons we are seeing right now, because of the fact that then blame gets, um, then there's blame, there's scapegoating, all of what you talked about. And that's one of the things, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of uncertainty right now that's occurring in our nation, in our world. And one of the ways that's discharged is through blame. And so to also communicate to our community, why is it so harmful? This has real, when we use words like this, this has real world consequences for people not only just in our community of Kensington Church, but also in our region and in our, uh, in our nation as well. And mm -hmm. so to help people to understand that, but also one of the big things was to move our people towards action as well. And one of the, and three of the things that I mentioned was um, education um, and just learning more um, about what was going on in this country with Asians and Asian Americans. The second was empathy. And that really was uh, to, an encouragement to build relationships uh, because one of the things is that we can know a lot but until we have those personal relationships, it doesn't really become real. And then when we have those relationships, suddenly all of these stories and everything, all these theories that we're learning about, now there's a face to it and it becomes personal to us because that person is our friend, whoever it may be, um, yeah. our coworker, whatever, um, whoever that person is. And, but also to engage as well. And to, because of course there's, there's tons of stuff going on on social media. Um, and for some people, when they go out, they may see this um, or potentially experience this, but if they do see it, it really was a, um, a call and an invitation to stand up and to speak out. Mm -hmm. um, and to not just simply say, hey, you know what, and to be a, simply a passive bystander, but to say, you know what, this is not okay. And so what will we do, not just simply as, as Jesus followers, but also simply as human beings, um, recognizing that this is not okay in our world. Are we just simply gonna let it continue on? Or are we gonna actually be people who push against this as well? Mm -hmm. Cool. Thanks. Um, we have about 10 minutes or so left. Uh, I'm scared to look at Facebook to see if we have questions. I don't even know if we have time. We might address that later. Let's, uh, let's go to our last section. Let's uh, talk about a little bit about um, a Christian response, I guess. And how can we, I guess for, for now, I'll, I'll move it to Helen. You talk about self-care. How do we as Asian Americans or Asian Canadians, right, 
mm-hmm. practice that in, when there's heightened anxiety and self-consciousness? Mm-hmm. Is there any tips or things you want to say to Asian Americans and Canadians, Asians living in the Western world, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that are dealing with some of these things? So first off, I want to acknowledge um, the listeners, um, wherever you are, um, your pain, your shame, your anxiety, depression, or any, any hardship that you're experiencing, um, first of all, I acknowledge you and um, whatever you're feeling is valid and it's normal. So um, I just wanted to get that right off the bat, because I think within the context of Asian identity and as it's um, continually um, building here in the West is um, sort of destigmatizing this fear of mental wellness and self-care. And what I mean by that is um, there's this view that um, looking for help or to say that you're struggling is considered weakness or having mental health challenges like anxiety or depression, which are just as common as catching the cold or the flu, right? Um, It doesn't make you um, a bad person. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. There's a distinction between what happened versus who you are. And when we talk about it as Christians, we say that we are created in the image of God. And when you're a believer, God sees you as a whole person to love and to cherish. And so in terms of um, breaking down some of those um, challenges is um, part one can be sort of like this breathing and grounding techniques that you can use. Um, A friend of mine, Amelda, she's an avid uh, journaler. Um, I believe she's part of the chat and commenting. Um, But yeah, she, um, if you, you know, join a local online uh, group, you can find easily on social media during these times, um, COVID-19. Amelda hosts the Women Creative Chats. So if you want to get into um, poetry, gratitude journaling, you know, sort of like reframing and renewing your mind um, into a space that helps you to declutter or some of the thoughts out, um, that's really helpful. It can also be something like, um, you know, just taking bit by bit to get in practice with um, your surroundings. So cleaning up your home, doing the dishes, like these are very mundane, but you'd be surprised to hear how many people are actually (laughs) um, procrastinating on these daily essentials that you need to do for part of self-care. So taking care of your household is part of your own self um, care and well-being. And it's actually highlighted in various um, mental health agencies. Um, and there's also uh, resources online that you can read about as well. And um, reaching out, you'd be surprised to know how many people are just sitting at home and are expecting someone to call them or not even expecting anyone to call them. I recently just had someone call me um, this Sunday, and it was an elder from a church um, that I haven't gone to in Toronto because I'm in Niagara now, but he called me out of the blue and it totally made my day. And I remember picking up the phone and just calling, um, speed dialing, you know, friends. And that just boosted their, you know, sense of, 
you know, where they are knowing that they're not alone. So you'd be surprised. I think um, part of self-care is also community care. It really boosts you knowing that you can be there for someone and just hold space without judgment. But what Andrew spoke about is really um, focusing on empathy. During this time, I really think it's, it's a time to um, really grow and build um, empathy for one another. And especially as Christians, um, you know, having that compassion, having that listening ear um, is, is, I think, part of discipleship during COVID-19 and how we can stand as witnesses. Cool. Thank you, Helen, for that. Those tips and just mental health awareness, very appreciated. All right, let's close with this question. It kind of follows on Andrew's statements. Is there anything else that anyone else would say for the diverse Christian body? Um, I think most people who tune in are Christian and are of various backgrounds. What, what would you say to Christians in this time of how to advocate or, or help um, Asian Americans, Asian Canadians deal with some of these issues that we presented today? What would you say to them other than what was said already? I know, Raymond, in, in the statement that your organization created, at, towards the end, there was some call to action as well, right? Yeah. Is there anything yeah. else? that could add to our conversation here? Yes, for those who are listening and aren't, aren't kind of familiar with what, what's being talked about or what's being uh, referred to, uh, if you go to the Asian American, if you go to Asian American Christian Collaborative, AA or Asian American Christian Collaborative or AA Christ or AA Christian Collaborative.com, uh, all the social media handles are the at sign or the ampersand AA Christ Collab. Uh, you'll see a, a host of resources that are being developed, including a statement that was drafted a few months ago uh, to address this very thing from a, a network of leaders um, across the country, a network of Asian American leaders. And that statement uh, was a statement that we wrote um, in response to the rising overt racism that we were seeing uh, on anti, the overt anti-Asian racism that we were noticing, especially around the COVID-19. Uh, we've amazingly gotten over 10,000 signatures from across the country. Um, many, uh, many, many Asian Americans signed on to it. Uh, many friends of the Asian American community signed on to it. And then many institutional signatories, including uh, organizations like the National Association for Evangelicals, uh, World Impact, uh, BioLogos, um, you know, several seminaries, including Western in, in Michigan, uh, Fuller Seminary, uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. You know, if you just go down a list and all the institutional signatories are there as well. Um, but there, we, we did have five calls to action. Uh, one was engaging in whole life discipleship in churches and embracing the teaching work of Jesus by actively combating anti-Asian racism, specifically from the pulpit in congregational life, right? In, in, in discipleship and in, in the broader world. Uh, then the second thing was increasing awareness and education on Asian American issues, anti-Asian bias and Asian American histories of oppression and resistance from early childhood, like pre-K all the way through higher education. The third thing we were asking for is to provide culturally competent mental health services and resources for Asian American youth and their families in all public schools and agencies. One of our, our friends, uh, a friend of mine who went to college with me is now a, a doctor uh, and in Hawaii, and he's doing a whole study on the impact of COVID-19 on Asian Americans. 
Uh, and so he's he's uh, he's doing some research on that. If you look up, look him up, Chuck Liu, uh, L-I-U is his last name. Uh, I'm sure that you can find uh, ways to support the the research because there's not you know there's not an abundance of money that's going to things like that. The fourth thing we ask people to do is to support Asian businesses and enterprises that are disproportionately and negatively impacted by COVID-19, mm -hmm. as well as Asian Americans in the workplace who are uh, unfairly targeted and discriminated against. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know a story of my friend's mother who worked in uh, the post office for over 30 years and her boss who she's worked with for 30 years started targeting her because she was Asian and told her that she shouldn't be coming into work anymore but she but he never told anyone else that as well right and so there that there's something about even co-workers who had known each other for 30 years uh, not being able to work with each other or understand how deep race and racialization impacts our our existence and then the last thing you know is to hold elected officials accountable for their words and inaction right let them know that use of harmful rhetoric uh, is not tolerated uh that they would and that we, we call people to pre pray that they would heed the responsibility to protect the vulnerable uh that they're in, uh, that they're called to oversee from violence and oppression and pursue justice and peace for the sake of the common good. And so we not so there's a whole statement that we've written that, that kind of talks about some of the major historical events that talks about the incidents that we've been seeing uh, and then it kind of calls people to solidarity around this. And, and that's one of the most amazing things about all this is that we've had friends from the African-American community, the Native American community, the, the, the white community, as well as the Latino American community um kind of come together to to say hey we're with you in this we're going to talk to churches and we've really appreciated the churches that have taken the statement and you know like one church in arkansas for example took the statement their elder boards deliberated their elder board deliberated on it and then they they sent it out to their whole congregation saying you know we don't know that many asians but we do know that there are a handful of asians within our community and we don't want any of our congregation members to be the ones that perpetuates this sort of anti-Asian racism or racism in general uh, during this time. And so here's some education uh, that'll help for, hopefully form you. And then we've also, like the weeks after, we've heard multiple people use the language in our statement to, to preach from their pulpit, from small churches to churches of you know thousands, uh, churches that are very recognizable um, and, and, and well-known, at least within the evangelical community. And so we've been grateful to see how churches are taking this and mobilizing kind of efforts to address issues like this. And of course, it's not, we don't wanna just have people address things only during the pandemic, right? We want them to, to kind of be informed about things like this, informed through these things. Uh, way beyond the pandemic and so we we have a bunch of articles and you know we we do receive submissions for them um from asian american christians and uh from friends of the asian american christian community uh we'll have a host of podcasts that are available we're going to have an artist collaborative we're going to be talking about asian american theology preaching mental health issues and everything else in between and we just kind of we're trying to create we're creating a space where we hope that asian american christians can and their and friends of the Asian American Christian communities can can consider home. Cool. Thank you, Ray. Um, I'm sorry, Helen. We went five minutes over. Um, no, that's great. Do you mind closing us in prayer right now? Sure. I'm happy okay. to pray. And um, okay. if any other um, brothers on this panel feel led by the Holy Spirit to um, pray as well, um, feel free to join. Um, in Korea, we call this popcorn style prayer. <laughs> so, 
since this is Asian Heritage Month, I just wanted to, you know, let people know. Um, my host, uh, DJ Chuang, calls it Tongsonggido. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to share this link with him later. Um, but anyways, I'll just end off in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for this opportunity to share with my brothers and sisters in faith and in unity, your love, your mercy, your grace, and your righteousness, your justice, and your pursuit. And uh, we humbly submit everything to you. Lord, you are in control. You see everything. And you know that those who love you and who are called um, will be doing good. So I pray for the people who are listening and uh, participating in this uh, lunch, that they will be blessed, they will be empowered, and to keep the conversation going so that there will be renewing of mind, renewing of spirit, and that we'll continue to um, be living uh, testimony of your will here on earth. And thank you, God, for Asian Heritage Month so that we can um, share the beauty of the diverse and rich civilizations in um, from Asia that you have created. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us, both here and online. We here at Life Church Auburn Hills, we love um, to talk about what we call 3C friendships, committed, cross-cultural, and Christ-centered. And these conversations here will help our congregation and other people who are connected to our church learn about the Asian American or Asian Canadian experience and learn about, or and like Andrew said, grow in empathy towards us and towards others that they might know. So thank you again for joining us and so long. Bye, everyone.